You're listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The 2023 New York Encounter just wrapped up, and we'd like to thank the over 400 volunteers who came to New York to help make it possible. We also want to thank everyone who made a financial contribution to the New York Encounter this year. And if you haven't, it's not too late. You can always head to newyorkencounter.org donate and contribute today. Thank you. I was telling Brian that he's used to these Madonna mics. I'm not. Um, but I welcome everyone who is here with us at the pavilion and everybody that is uh, watching online. Um, I'm very happy to be here um, to uh, discuss this uh, intense topic. Without truth, there is no reconciliation. And uh, my name is Esmeralda Negron. I'm a lawyer, uh, an assistant public defender in um, Palm Beach County, Florida. And I've been practicing uh, that law, criminal defense, since 2017. Uh, I first came in contact with Brian's work through my boss, who requires a reading of his book, Just Mercy. Um, Mr. Stevenson, Brian, is, um, is the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative and um, a giant in the criminal defense world. So I, I feel uh, I'm, I'm before him uh, in awe and with a little bit of fear and trembling. But <laughs> he's such a gracious man that uh, I, I'm, I'm actually quite looking forward to this conversation and not as nervous as I thought I would be. It's, it's all you. <laughs> but if you want to know more about Brian, there is an extensive bio at the New York Encounter website that you can certainly um, take a look at. His accomplishments are many, many. Um, in my view, his biggest accomplishment is um, the substance of his person and his heart. Um, I heard someone say in a HBO uh, special called True Justice, uh, a colleague of his, uh, say that Brian is the work. And so we're here to talk about that work and what it means. So here we are. Here we are. <laughs> um, Can I break protocol? Absolutely. One way. I just want people to know how thrilled I am to be here, but I'm especially thrilled because um, the folks who I think of as my people are in this space, and there's a group of people sitting on the front row in this space from a place called Joseph House in Florida, and they are people. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, They are people who know, who know firsthand the, the problems created by our criminal legal system and the challenges. And I'm honored to be in this space with them. And I'm especially honored to be in this space with one of my beloved clients, uh, a man um, I've known for several years. He was 13 years old when he was sentenced to life in prison without parole in the state of Florida and spent some excruciating years in adult prisons navigating violence and abuse and trauma, but he has this beautiful, beautiful spirit. And that prison was violent and abusive, but it could not take away that beautiful spirit. And he and I have been in prison cells and laughed and embraced one another, and he represents the joy, the humility, the humanity that I want everybody in the world to see in the clients that I represent, the people I represent. And so I'm especially honored to be here with my brother, uh, the beloved Joe Sullivan. 
Brian, you can break protocol anytime <laughs> you want to this hour. I invite you to. Well, thank you. So I want to begin by simply telling you that uh, a few weeks ago, uh, myself and Alberto that you met went up to the Legacy Museum. And um, I drove up from West Palm Beach to Gainesville, and then we made it a day trip, and we went up there. And what I want to say is that I walked into that museum. While I was there, I felt embraced and welcomed, even in front of all of the uh, really hard things that I had to look at. Um, you know, you begin with the history of, of racial injustice, which begins in the 17th century. Um, you walk in and literally you are overwhelmed by the, the gravity and the depthness of, you know, just the horrors um, uh, that is our sad history of racial injustice. And then you're carried through the different periods, you know, segregation, uh, desegregation, um, lynchings, um, some incredibly poignant panels and short films, and then you get to mass incarceration, um, and, you, and, and you wonder. But when I walked out of there, I didn't feel crushed and destroyed. I felt hopeful, really hopeful, um, hopeful that there's a way to move forward. So I'm going to ask you a question. Some people might say, why look back? Why not simply look forward and begin from now? Uh, the civil rights movement, uh, uh, affirmative action, all of these gains that we've made. Um, why, why do that? So how is it possible to confront the truth of our history of racial injustice without fomenting a greater divide. And I felt that. I didn't feel that there was a divide there. I felt identified with what was in that museum. Well, I do think that the only way you can heal a wound is if you diagnose the nature of the wound. We have an understanding in this country that to get past high blood pressure or diabetes, you have to first make a diagnosis, you have to first understand what that means. Nobody's gonna sign up for chemotherapy or radiation treatment unless there's been a diagnosis that there is a cancer that could kill them if they do not address it. And I think injustice operates in the same way. If we do not acknowledge the ways in which we have become compromised by inequality and injustice. Uh, we will ignore it, it will fester, and it will kill us. And the truth is, is that we've never really acknowledged the harm created by our history of racial injustice. We are a post-genocide society in this country. And it doesn't matter whether you live in Florida or California or Oregon, no matter where you live in this country, you live in a space where the atmosphere has been contaminated by this long history of racial inequality. And a lot of people have argued that these contaminants will eventually dissipate. I don't believe that. I believe we're gonna to have to do something to change the environment. And that means talking about things that we haven't talked about. We have never really talked about the fact that we are a post-genocide society. I think what happened to indigenous people 
when Europeans came to this continent was a genocide because we killed millions of native people through famine and war and disease. We made them leave. We kept their land, we kept their words. Half the states in America are native words, but we made the people leave and we did not acknowledge the suffering and the violence. And we were crafting a constitution that talked about equality and justice for all. At the very same time, we were denying basic humanity to millions of indigenous people. And we reconciled that by creating this narrative of racial difference, and it was that narrative that then made us tolerate uh, two and a half centuries of slavery. And I just don't think we've ever acknowledged it. We haven't talked about it. We haven't understood the way in which it created harms for everybody. I don't think the great evil of American slavery was the, the involuntary servitude or the forced labor. I think the real evil of slavery was the narrative we created to justify enslavement because people who were enslavers didn't want to feel unchristian or immoral or unjust, so they created this narrative that black people aren't as good as white people, that black people are less human, less capable, less worthy, less evolved, and that narrative which facilitated this ideology of white supremacy has never really been acknowledged. We passed the 13th Amendment, uh, which uh, ended in voluntary servitude, except for people convicted of crimes, uh, but it didn't say anything about this ideology of racial hierarchy. And because of that, we then lived through a century of terrorism and violence and lynching where black people were pulled out of their homes, beaten, tortured, drowned, lynched, sometimes on courthouse lawns. And that presumption of dangerousness and guilt that was created by that narrative continued. And it continues today uh, and that's why somebody like Joe Sullivan can be wrongly convicted and spend decades in prison for a crime he didn't commit. That's why even I, as an attorney, can go places. Um, you know, I argued the cases at the Supreme Court that resulted in these wins, was going around the country, you know, enforcing that ruling. And I would go to courtrooms in the Midwest. I'd have my suit and tie on. I'd be sitting at defense counsel's table. And the judge would come in and get angry. And you've been in these courtrooms, you know what that's like. The judge would say, hey, hey, you get back out of here. I don't want any defendant sitting in my courtroom without their lawyer. And I'd have to stand up and say, oh, I'm sorry, Your Honor, I didn't introduce myself. My name is Brian Stevenson. I am the lawyer. And the judge would start laughing and the prosecutor would start laughing. And I'd make myself laugh because I didn't want to disadvantage my client who's more vulnerable than I am. And, um, and then we'd do the hearing and afterward I'd sit in my car and I think about the fact that I'm a middle-aged black man, I've got all of these degrees, I've got all of these honors, I've got all of these awards, and in 2022, I am still required to laugh at my own humiliation to do justice for my clients. And so for me, that has to change, and that is the, the vision behind the museum. When you go to South Africa, there's an apartheid museum that documents the horrors of apartheid. When you go to Germany, to Berlin, there's a Holocaust memorial that documents the horrors of the, of the Holocaust. You can't go 200 meters in Berlin without seeing markers and stones that have been placed around that city to make sure everyone knows they are trying to reckon with the Holocaust. And as a result of that, there are no Adolf Hitler statues in Germany. There are no memorials to the perpetrators of the Holocaust, the organizers of the Third Reich. But in this country, we haven't done that. And I live in a region where the landscape is littered with iconography dedicated to honoring those who were the defenders and perpetrators of that. And so the museum 
is an effort at truth-telling, but you're right, the goal is not division, the goal is redemption. I'm not trying to talk about this history because I want to punish America. I'm talking about this history because I want to liberate us. And people of faith understand that there has to be confession and repentance if we're going to get to redemption and restoration. And as we say at the end of the museum, the purpose of the museum is to create a world where the children of our children are no longer burdened by the legacy of slavery and racial injustice and racial hierarchy, but to create that world, we've got work to do. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The New York Encounter is a three-day cultural event that takes place every President's Day weekend in Manhattan. Every year, we bring together speakers, put on exhibits, and host musical shows, offering opportunities for education, dialogue, and friendship. Following St. Paul's suggestion to test everything and retain what is good, the Encounter aims to discover, affirm, and offer to everyone truly human expressions of the desire for truth, beauty, and justice. To learn more about the New York Encounter, visit newyorkencounter.org. We do have work to do. I've, I've seen it in the courtroom with colleagues that are black um, that are asked. This is the very same question you are asked. And, and public defenders who are in the courtroom all the time. Um, so it's difficult to, to watch that. But I'd like to talk about a little bit about um, your history because I think that as I've gotten to know you through books and uh, different talks that I've heard you give, um, you talk a lot about your family, and, and rightly so. Um, you talk about your parents, uh, your brother and sister, and you also talk about your grandmother. I was quite moved by a story that you told that I'm going to let you tell, but I, I want the question that I have is, because you, you don't have this ideological spirit, you don't have this divisive spirit, how, do you, how are you able to foment such hopefulness? Where does that come from? Where is the source of your hope? And I can't help but go to the beginnings, right? Your family. Can you talk a little bit about how they've influenced you? Oh, absolutely. And it, 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 it's interesting, when I was younger, I didn't talk about it as much, but as I've, I've gotten deeper into the work, I've had to examine those same questions about what will sustain me. And I have talked a lot more about my family because I think when I, when I think about their lives and what they've done, I, I find in that um, truths that I need to hold on to. My great-grandfather was enslaved. My great-grandparents, James and Victoria Baylor, were enslaved in Caroline County, Virginia. And despite the fact that anti-literacy laws made it illegal for an enslaved person to learn to read, you could be sold, you could be killed, you could be imprisoned, my great-grandfather learned to read while he was enslaved as a teenager because he believed that one day he'd be free. And I think about that because there was nothing about life in Virginia in the 1850s that would suggest that freedom was right around the corner, and yet he had that belief. And from that, I draw the conclusion that I have to be willing to believe things I have not seen if I'm going to make progress, if I'm going to push forward. 
And um, after emancipation, my grandmother told me how people would come to their home every week and my great-grandfather would stand on the porch and he would read the newspaper to formerly enslaved people who didn't know how to read. And it made her so proud that he had that ability to read. And she would sit next to him. And of course, she demanded that he teach her how to read. There wasn't a lot of formal education. And she became a reader. And my people were poor. Uh, she moved to, to, to Philadelphia. She had 10 children. She worked as a domestic her whole life. But she made sure all of her children were readers. And my mom was the youngest of her 10 kids. And we grew up poor in a racially segregated community. But she gave us books. My mom went into debt to buy the World Book Encyclopedia so that we could see a world bigger than the world we could see outside our door. Because outside our door, there was outhouses and poverty and people working in poultry factories as if that was the only option. And so I do take from that that there is something powerful in what we can give to one another. And it is rooted in love. And it is rooted in this idea that we can create a better world. And, and that's definitely something. My, I used to ask, my grandmother had 10 kids. I'd say, Mama, why did, you have all, why did you have 10 children? That's a lot of children. And my grandmother would say, um, it's because I had so much love to give. And when you have love, you have to give it. She said, I don't want to leave this place without having given away the love that I have. And, and there's something powerful in that idea, and the people around me who were poor, who were disfavored, who were marginalized, who were excluded, who were often told that they weren't good enough to go through the front door, who had to kind of endure the humiliation of all of that signage in Jim Crow, white and colored, the people around me who had to carry the burden of that still had this amazing capacity to show love to anyone they encountered. Uh, I, you know, my grandmother, I, I like talking about this. When, when integration came to our community, my grandmother started doing this thing where she would come up to me. She had never lived through that. She was just worried about us. And she started coming up to me. I was like nine. And she'd come up to me and she'd give me these hugs and she'd squeeze me so tightly, I thought she was trying to hurt me. <laughs> and then she'd see me an hour later and she'd say, Brian, do you still feel me hugging you? And if I said no, she would jump on me again. <laughs> So, so by the time I was 10, I had learned, every time I saw my grandmother, the first thing I would say is, Mama, I always feel you hugging me. <laughs> and she'd smile this smile, and I didn't appreciate what she was teaching me. And as I said, she, she worked as a domestic her whole life. She lived into her 90s. But when she got in her 90s, she fell one day, and she broke her hip. And then she was diagnosed with cancer. And I was in college at the time, and my grandmother was dying. And I just couldn't imagine being in the world without her. She was just that precious to me. And um, I went to go see her, and they, they told me this would be the last time. And I remember going and sitting next to her bed and holding her hand. Her eyes were closed, and I just started talking. And somehow I got in my head that if I kept talking, she couldn't die. And so I just talked. I talked and talked. And, and finally they came in and said, Brian, you got you have to go. And I remember just being just heartbroken. And I stood up to leave. And just as I stood up to leave, I remember my grandmother opening her eyes and then squeezing my hand. And she looked at me. And the last thing she said to me, she said, Brian, do you still feel me hugging you? And then she said, I want you to know I'm always going to be hugging you. 
And I'll be honest, I feel the embrace of the people who came before me, I do. I, I feel like I'm being um, encouraged by people who had to suffer through slavery, who had to endure the humiliation and the violence of lynching, who had to navigate the complexities of segregation. And there is a strength in that. When we opened the National Memorial, the, the space that honors thousands of victims of lynchings, um, I was preoccupied, you know, as a lawyer, you'll identify with this, you know, you wanna control everything. You wanna make sure everything goes exactly the way you've imagined it. And we were opening these sites and 25,000 people came to Montgomery and I was you know, trying to manage, manage, manage. And on the morning of the dedication of the memorial, I said, everything's gonna be great, it just cannot rain because the memorial is outside and I don't want hundreds of people to get caught. And the clouds were, were, were dark and, and, and ominous and that morning I kept thinking, oh, it can't rain, it can't rain. And we had all of these people come inside this memorial outside and uh, things were going well, I was looking at the sky, and just before I was supposed to get up and speak, right before the end, it, the clouds just opened up and started pouring down raining. And this thing that I had been dreading, it first of all, it just made me feel, ah, oh, this is awful. And I was sitting inside that memorial, looking up at the names of thousands of black people who've been lynched, whose names have never been spoken or acknowledged. And all of a sudden, um, it was like getting one of my grandmother's hugs. All of a sudden, it didn't feel like it was raining on that memorial. All of a sudden, it sounded like all of these people whose lives had been crushed by violence and bigotry, who had been torn away from their families, who had been tortured and killed, all of these people, it sounded like they could finally cry tears of joy because someone was acknowledging the value of their lives, the importance of their witness. And it created a different relationship to that rain. And when we are mindful of all of the forces that have pushed us, who lift us up, I stand on the shoulders of a generation of people who came before me who did so much more with so much less. The people who came before me, they would put on their Sunday best, they'd go places to push for the right to vote, for an end to segregation, they'd be on their knees praying knowing that they were gonna get beaten and battered and bloodied, and they still went. And when you understand that that kind of spirit has given voice to what you're trying to do, it's impossible to become hopeless about your capacity. It's impossible to turn around given all that we have been given. It, it doesn't mean that we don't have to talk about it and think about it and focus. It doesn't mean we don't get overwhelmed, that there won't be tears, that there won't be agony, that there won't be pain because there will. But I feel really fortunate to do what I do, and I do feel lifted up by all of these people who've come before me. I feel embraced uh, by people like my grandmother. And there is an assurance in that that can sustain, and it absolutely energizes me in the work that I do. What about your relationship with Stephen Bright? Can you talk a little bit about, for those that don't know, can you explain yeah. who Stephen is? Yeah, Stephen Bright is, um, was the director of, a, at that time, called the Southern Prisoners Defense Community. It was an organization in Atlanta, Georgia. And, you know, the backstory is, is, you know, I, as a result of integration and lawyers coming into our community to open up the public schools, when I was little, I started my education in a colored school. Lawyers came in, made them open up the public schools, and because of that, I got to go to high school, I got to go to college, loved college, was very engaged with music and 
and sports and I was a philosophy major and toward the end of my college career somebody came up to me one day and said um, you know nobody's going to pay you to philosophize when you graduate from college <laughs> and I hadn't really thought about what came after college and I started looking into graduate programs in history and English and political science and I realized that to get admitted to those programs you have to know a lot about history English and political science I was very intimidated by that so I kept looking and to be honest, that's how I found my way to law school, because it became clear to me, you don't need to know anything to go to law school. <laughs> and so uh, I signed up there. But I was very disillusioned at, at Harvard Law School, because it didn't seem like anybody was talking about race or, or the poor, social inequality. And I, I left after my first year. I went over to the School of Government to get a degree in public policy, and I didn't feel good about that. It seemed like they were teaching us to maximize benefits and minimize costs, but it didn't matter whose benefits got maximized and whose costs got minimized. And I went back, and I was really having an existential crisis, uh, and I took a course that required me to spend a month in Atlanta, Georgia, working with these human rights lawyers. And uh, Steve Bright, who was the director of that organization, met me in North Carolina. We flew from North Carolina to Atlanta, and he modeled, along with the other lawyers there, a different kind of lawyering. These were lawyers that got up early in the morning. They worked hard all day. You could tell their lives were animated by the work they were doing. And that just showed me that it was possible to integrate everything that I was feeling in my heart and everything I was pushing me uh, from my history with the practice of law. And, uh, you know, Steve modeled for me this idea that you create justice in the world not by the ideas in your mind, but by the conviction in your heart. And uh, I graduated and I went to work with him. You know, I was making $14,000 a year. Uh, I couldn't afford a place to stay. Um, Steve let me sleep on his couch, uh, and for like, I think he thought I was going to be there like a few weeks, I was there a year and a half, um, but he saw that as part of what had to be done to meet the needs of people on death row who were literally dying for legal assistance. The needs were so overwhelming, this was in the 80s where, you know, we would get calls on a Tuesday about somebody who had an execution date on a Friday and we'd have to intervene, and we'd go running. And, and, um, and we just believed that we had to do whatever it took. And I think Steve and, and SPDC modeled something that became um, what I've tried to do, which is a law practice that is client-centered, where, where you prioritize the needs of the people you represent over your own needs, because basically the people you represent are so much more vulnerable than you're going to be. So yes, it would be nicer to live here and have this and do this, but if that's going to block you from doing the things you need to do, then you, you need to do these things. And it was a really important, really necessary lesson, and I'm grateful to him. And the community of people around him who also had that spirit of service, um, uh, which I think is so essential if we're going to actually advance justice. And you know, as you were talking, um, all these things, you know, getting up early in the morning and working and doing for our, for our clients and, uh, you know, really wanting sometimes, for me, to have the temerity to try to fix them somehow mm. or, or make their problems go away. 
How, how do you not despair? And I ask this question for myself. Yeah. How do you not despair in front of doing and doing and doing and then hearing that someone is going to be executed? You know, I think it's, I, I think it's better to prepare yourself for moments of despair than to try to function in a way where there will never be despair. You know, um, when we first opened our office in the late 80s, I got a call from someone who was scheduled to be executed. We hadn't even received like books and computers yet. It was literally the first day the phones worked. And this man said, uh, Mr. Stevenson, I'm scheduled to be executed in 30 days. Will you please take my case? And I said, look, I'm sorry, but I can't take any cases. I don't have staff. I don't have books. I don't have anything. I don't think I can help you yet. And he didn't even say anything. He just hung up. And it unnerved me. And I didn't sleep that night. And I came back the next day. And he called me again. He said, Mrs. Stevenson, I know you don't have your books. I know you don't have your computers. I know you don't have your staff. He said, but please take my case. He said, you don't have to tell me you can win. You don't have to tell me you can get a stay of execution. He said, but I don't think I can make it these next 29 days if there's no hope at all. And so I said, yes, because I couldn't, I didn't have the capacity to say no. And we tried really hard to get a stay of execution, but every court we went to said too late. And one of the problems with our legal system, even now, is that we have a legal system that is more committed to finality than to fairness. And so every court said, too late, too late. All of these issues should have been presented. And on the day of the execution, I found myself uh, going down to Atmore, Alabama to be with this man. This is when they executed people by electrocution. And when I got there, they shaved the hair off of his body, which was one of the most brutally humiliating things I've ever seen happen to a human being. And we started talking. And it was really emotional, and it was really intense, and we were praying, we were holding hands, and all of this. And then he said to me, he said, Brian, it's been so strange. He said, all day long, people have been saying, what can I do to help you? When I woke up this morning, the guard said, what can we get you for breakfast? Then they said, what can we get you for lunch? What can we get you for dinner? All day long, people have been saying, how can I help you? Do you want stamps for your letters? Do you want coffee? Do you want water? And then he looked at me and he said, Brian, it's been so strange. He said, more people have said, what can I do to help you in the last 14 hours of my life than they ever did in the first 19 years of my life. And I was thinking, yeah, we're worthy when your mom died when you were three. We're worthy when you were abused at seven. We're worthy when you were dealing with the drugs uh, we're worthy when you came back from Vietnam traumatized. And with those kinds of questions in my mind, they pulled this man away, strapped him uh, into the electric chair, and executed him. And there was a part of me that didn't think I could ever recover from that. But there was another part of me that understood how important it was to have fought for this man to have made the argument that his life has value, that his life has purpose, that he is not beyond hope, he is not beyond redemption. And to put that in the world, to put that in the record before someone executed him. And I think about him, I talk about him a lot, and um, that experience has pushed me to find and to fight. And that's the thing about despair, it's sometimes when we are overwhelmed with the weight of a problem, 
that we begin to think differently about what we're going to do to deconstruct this problem. It's, that's the process that gives rise um, to innovation, uh, to new strategies, to new solutions. And I just think we have to prepare ourselves for that. I'm, I've been doing this a long time. Uh, I know that there will still be times, there will be days when I'm gonna be overwhelmed. I'm gonna see something painful that breaks my heart. But I've gotten this consciousness that tells me that if we persevere, if we push on, maybe we'll get on the other side of that. And I think about that in relation you know, to the people I represent. So I'm, I'm, I'm gonna talk about Joe because he's here. When I, you know, uh, first time I met Joe was at a Florida prison where they did um, not treat people well. And they moved him to the visitation room and they put him in a little cell, he's in a wheelchair, and they put him in a little cell and they couldn't get him out. And what they did was just painful to witness. And I didn't think um, we'd get past that. And then we started talking and I realized that he was a poet and he was someone who had this amazing laugh and there was nothing I wanted to do more than to get Joe Sullivan out of prison because I knew he did not belong there. And we kept fighting. Every court we went to in Florida said denied. Every court we went to said denied. And eventually the United States Supreme Court granted cert. And I remember being in front of the United States Supreme Court arguing that it is cruel to say to any child of 13 that you are only fit to die in prison. And I was thinking about Joe Sullivan. And then I remember saying how unusual it is that we shield children from drugs and alcohol. We don't let them do all of these things, but we're willing to put 13 and 14-year-old children in adult prisons and condemn to die. And I don't think it's possible without that kind of despair that pushes you. And ultimately, uh, we won that case. And that's why it's so precious, even magical, to be on this stage talking to you here in New York City and to have him sitting a few feet away. And that's what happens. <laughs> but, but I say that as just a testament to what happens when you push through despair when you push through everybody saying no, when you hear people keep saying, sit down and you still stand up, when you hear people keep saying, be quiet and you still speak, and it is exhausting, uh, but I am now really privileged because I've been doing this long enough to see the fruits of that, to know that, um, uh, that truth crushed to earth will rise again. I don't think that what we have seen is what we will continue to see forever. And that is the, that is the hope, that is the faith. And uh, I get encouraged along the way when things turn out the right way. But I think you have to prepare yourself for moments of desperation and despair. And I tell everybody who comes to my office, there are gonna be some days when there's gonna be tears. This is not a tear-free life. And I think sometimes when you understand that, you navigate those moments differently uh, with a conviction that they do not end your effort. They're just a part of your effort. You are listening to the New York Encounter podcast. 
The encounter is entirely volunteer run and donation funded. And as you probably realize, it takes a lot of money every year to put it on. What that means is that if you want the encounter to continue its work, we need your help. Head on over to newyorkencounter.org donate and consider making a monthly donation to sustain the encounter in its work. Thank you for your support. I, um, I'd like to um, talk about this whole idea of, um, you know, the, the, we need criminal justice reform, uh, systemic racism in society, um, all of these seemingly insurmountable big problems, but yet I'm standing here, sitting here, in front of you um, with Joe there, and there's a relationship there, no? Um, it's about a person, a man with a name, first and last. Um, how, how can we educate young people, and not so young people, not to, not to allow um, the circumstances that continue to exist with uh, you know, racial bias and injustice? Um, you know, and I can name names as far as what's been going on in the news the Black Lives Matter movement that uh, has arisen around all of this, and the real, real problem of, um, of police brutality. I, I see it. Um, unfortunately, sometimes I see it um, on videos as part of evidence. Um, but how, how, can, how can we educate an entire society? Can we change the society collectively? What, is that even possible? Does the question make sense? Yeah, it does. And I absolutely think it's possible. I mean, in many ways, the existence of the museum and memorial we created is a testament to some progress because um, I, you know, I didn't have the capacity, the ability to even imagine something like that at the start of my career. We can do something like that. Now, and when you look at what we've done on other issues, I am persuaded that we can do better here. Uh, there was a time in this country where we did not think domestic abuse was a big deal. We would not arrest people who were engaged in domestic violence. And women would be calling the police and police would show up, they're not gonna arrest the man for that abuse. There was this false idea that if you married someone, somehow you're just stuck with whatever you experience. And we started working on the narrative and we started telling stories. We gave names to the victims of that abuse. There was a film, A Burning Bed, Farrah Fawcett. It was just a way of naming and dramatizing the experience of that. And the narratives began to shift. And now we're in a very different place. We still have a lot of work to do, but we're in a very different place. We tolerated uh, drunk driving. For a long time, in my lifetime, when I was a teenager, there were no severe penalties for people who got in cars intoxicated. And so many children were being killed on roadways by intoxicated drivers. And then this group, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, began naming their children. And they got resources and they started doing campaigning and, and commercials. And it changed the comfort of policymakers with that issue. And we began to think differently about the consequences of that. And today, the legal landscape has shifted entirely when it comes to that issue. And you see that in a lot of areas. We just haven't made that kind of effort when it comes to race. And we've allowed false narratives to create this world that we're now dealing with in our, in our criminal legal system. I mean, the false narrative, which was rooted in what I call the politics of fear and anger, 
is that we had politicians saying that people who are drug addicted and drug dependent are criminals, and we're gonna use the criminal justice system to deal with them. When in fact, people who are drug addicted uh, or, or drug dependent have a health problem, and we really need to be using the healthcare system to respond to that. But when people are being governed by fear and anger, they will tolerate things that they're not, they shouldn't tolerate. They'll accept things that they wouldn't otherwise accept. And that's what has been behind this punitive era in American society. And politicians were literally competing with each other over who could be the most punitive. Three strikes, you're out. Life without parole for this, life without. I represent people who are serving life without parole sentences for writing a bad check for under $100 because of felony, habitual felony offender laws. And we had this false idea come into our policy making that we could put crimes in prison, and that's the way legislators and policymakers debate them. Oh, that crime, I hate that crime. Let's put that in prison for 50 years. Oh, I hate that crime even more. Let's put that in 100 years. And we allow these policymakers to function as if you can put crimes in prison, and you cannot put a crime in prison. You can only put a person in prison, and people are not crimes. And that reality got lost, and so part of what has to change is we have to get people to understand that there are people behind these behaviors. And so, yes, I absolutely believe it can shift. Look, we're, this is, we have still been a country, and it's only since the 1970s that the prison population started to escalate. Throughout most of the 20th century, it was relatively stable. And while it's gone on for 50 years, most of American history, um, we have not had you know, hundreds of thousands of people in our prisons with these kinds of long-term sentences. But it will take a lot of effort to kind of change that. Uh, and that's why I think it is important to engage people in this broader conversation about what does doing justice require? What does loving mercy require? What does a relationship with uh, people who you care about require? But I'm absolutely persuaded. We could actually reduce the prison population today by half, and it would have no adverse impact on public safety. I'm very, very confident about that. We could let half the people in our jails and prisons out and it would not have any adverse impact on public safety. We just have to find the will to understand that being the country with the highest rate of incarceration in the world is nothing we should be proud of. That indicts our commitment to democracy and justice. It is a stain, it is a blur on our human rights identity. And if we're gonna make progress in the world, then we're gonna to have to deal with that. you come across a lot of young people. And I heard you say once that um, you go to these communities that are very poor um, and very segregated, and you talk to young men who tell you that their expectation is that they're going to go to prison someday. Um, talk to me about what we can do to educate those young men and women um, that are hopeless because you have hope. How, how, can, how can we as a society assist um, and facilitate the possibility for a young man not to believe that he's just part of a system that's gonna send him to prison? Well, I, I think it's a threefold problem. I think, first of all, everybody else in society has to care more about the plight of people 
who are marginalized and excluded. So when the Bureau of Justice projected in 2001 that one in three black male babies born in this country is expected to go to jail or prison, one in six Hispanic boys is expected to go to jail or prison, um, that was shocking, but what was more shocking was the collective silence that surrounded that. There were no convenings, there were no pandemic-like interventions. We did not talk about what we're going to have to do to prevent this horrible thing from happening. We just sort of accepted it. And that tolerance is part of the problem. So I want to say to the rest of society that we do not show our commitment to children by looking at how well we treat talented kids and gifted kids and privileged kids. If we really want to know how we're treating our children, if we want to know what we're doing for children, we have to look at how we're treating poor kids, neglected kids, abused kids, kids in detention facilities. That's where you understand a society's commitment to its children. The second thing is that we have to deal with this epidemic of trauma, uh, because that's behind a lot of these really problematic uh, outcomes. And the truth is, we've got zip codes all over America where 60, 70, 80% of the kids are going to end up in some kind of system because they're living in spaces where too many are born into violent families, they live in violent neighborhoods, people are always shouting, there's too much gun violence, there's too much domestic violence, there's too much police violence. And when you're surrounded by that, you, you, you develop a trauma disorder. Just like our combat veterans, when you go abroad, if somebody came in here and threatened to kill all of us, each of us would start producing cortisol and adrenaline because that's how we cope with threat. And if that threat were eliminated, some of us would get back to normal in a couple of hours. Some of us, it would take a couple of days. For some of us, it might take weeks, depending on our prior exposure. And what happens when you're constantly being threatened, like our, our soldiers, the brain just starts producing those chemicals all the time. And even when you're not being threatened, you're in this hyper-reactive state, this hyper-vigilant kind of state. And that's what the problem is when our veterans come home. And the way you treat that is you try to create an environment where someone feels safe. And you make them feel safe long enough that the brain starts producing those chemicals. Well, we've got children in this country born into these violent spaces. And by the time they're four or five, they're in that traumatized state. We send them to schools. Uh, we have teachers in the schools that talk to these young people like the teachers are correctional officers. We have principals that run the schools like they're prison wardens. We threaten them with expulsion and we threaten them with suspension. We threaten and threaten and threaten. And when you're dealing with a trauma disorder, that just aggravates the conditions that you are dealing with. And so when you get to be eight and somebody gives you a drug for the first time, and says, hey, take this, we know what you're going through, and you'll have a few hours where you don't feel threatened and menaced. You take the drug, and what do you want? You want more of the drug. Or when somebody comes along in your tent and says, I know exactly what you're feeling, that's why we have this gang, and we'll help you fight against the things, you join the gang. And so we have to understand the, the sociological and the psychological conditions that are pushing these young kids to think what they think. And then lastly, I want to say to the kids, is that you are strong enough, you are talented enough, you are beautiful enough that despite all of these things, despite the indifference of the larger society, despite all of these threats, you can still find a way. And we want to educate them about the people that came before them. We have a calendar that talks about the history of struggle. And I give that to my young clients because I want them to understand that however hard and difficult things seem for them, they are not the first people in this country to have looked at a world where there was nothing but hardship. 
And I talk about my enslaved great-grandparents. I talk about people who had to flee the land because of lynching and violence. I talk about the degradation of segregation. And I want them to understand that they have more power than others think they have. And when you find your power, when you find your voice, when you find your poetry, then you can survive, then you can overcome, then you can navigate things that people didn't think you could navigate. You need help along the way, which is why we have to all wrap our arms around people like that. But for me, it's about saying to those young people, you have capacity to do things that others don't think, but it's also about saying to the rest of society that this is your problem too, that you have to be engaged in creating a society where all children have the opportunity to be healthy and to live and to thirst. And then we need to stop spending billions of dollars to put people in jails and prisons and start spending money on creating a kind of intervention that helps us deal with the challenges of trauma and mental illness and poverty and despair that is so epidemic in too many communities in this country. You are listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The Encounter is entirely volunteer-run and donation-funded. And as you probably realize, it takes a lot of money every year to put it on. What that means is that if you want The Encounter to continue its work, we need your help. Head on over to newyorkencounter.org donate and consider making a monthly donation to sustain The Encounter in its work. Thank you for your support. I, you know, you're, uh, I guess, one of the most famous quotes, and if you Google Brian Stevenson quotes, they come up. <laughs> um, but um, each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. Um, what is that more in each of us that makes you be able to say that statement? Well, I just think that um, every person has the capacity uh, to move toward redemption. I believe that. Every person has the capacity to move toward love. Um, I've represented a lot of people. I've never represented anybody who just wanted to be in prison, who just wanted uh, to commit crime. I've never represented anybody like that. And um, for me, it's not really hard to see the other things you are, right? The other things that people are. What's hard is when we judge people so harshly that we don't allow them to be anything else uh, than the label we give them. One of my big pet peeves, and sorry to go off on this tangent, but I just wrote a letter about this. Is newspapers do this all the time. You know, when they report on people um, who are in the criminal legal system, they'll actually use labels like convicted killer, convicted rapist, or rapist, or burglar, or gang leader, as if that identity describes entirely who that person is. And the problem is, of course, they don't do that for, for people with status. If a police officer is accused of crime, they get to stay a police officer even while they're being prosecuted. If somebody with means is accused of something, they keep their identity. We will make people learn their names, but these other folks. And that kind of labeling creates this kind of notion that these people, and when you read in the newspaper that juvenile killers are trying to get out of prison, it creates rage and resistance. And so I have to keep preaching that we are all more than the worst thing we've ever done. And I don't think it's something I want people to hear 
as me talking just about my clients, I want them to hear it for themselves too. I believe everybody here is more than the worst thing we've ever done. I think if somebody here is told a lie, it would be tragic if they could forever only be known as a liar. Most people have told lies, and it would be tragic if we take, took away from them the opportunity to be anything other than a liar. I think if someone takes something that doesn't belong to them, they're not just a thief. I think even if you kill someone, you're not just a killer. And I believe that because that's what my lived experience in jails and prisons over 30-some years has taught me. But beyond that, it's what my lived experience with human beings in a variety of settings have taught me. Even the people who have engaged in horrific bigotry, that judge I mentioned, it's so interesting. When we opened the sites, we got a lot of people visiting. And uh, people now come to Montgomery, and they go to the sites, and a lot of them have read the book, and they come to the office, and they were like, I want to talk to Brian Stevenson. And we've had, it's wonderful, but I can't come and talk to all of them. We've had like thousands of people coming. And so my, my reception is very skilled at saying, yes, no, I appreciate that, but I doubt that. And one day this man came and he was saying, uh, I want to talk to Brian Stevenson. And she gave him the same rap and uh, he just started crying in the lobby, middle-aged white guy. And he just started doing all of these things. And my assistant finally said, Brian, I don't know what to do. This, this guy down here, and he's just saying he has to talk to you. And so I said, all right. This is not something I'm encouraging anybody else to do. <laughs> the, the point of this story is not that this is the recipe, not that you would. Uh, but I, I went down into the lobby, and uh, this man ran over to me and gave me this hug. And I could tell he was crying, and he just started saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Didn't know who he was. And I stepped back, and that's when I recognized him. It was the judge that got mad at me for being in the courtroom uh, a few years earlier. He says, I treated you unfairly. What I did was wrong. It was racist. I realize it, and I'm just so sorry. And what's interesting to me about that is... Um, I like people to know that even when we engage in acts that are bigoted and violent and destructive, we have the capacity to get past that. You know, we have a horrible history in this country, but I'm not afraid to talk about this history because I also believe that we can be something better. I think there is something better waiting for us in America, I do. There's something that feels more like freedom, feels more like equality, feels more like justice, and it's waiting for us, but for us to get there, we have to acknowledge when we make mistakes. We have to learn how to say, I'm sorry. Our culture does not like, I'm sorry. And our systems really don't like, I'm sorry. They hate saying, I'm sorry. They fight against it. Our politicians don't like saying, I'm sorry. They think it makes them look weak. And I think it is an obstacle to becoming strong. I'm sorry is the way. <laughs> and, and, and I. And I say this because I really believe it, because if we want to build lasting and enduring, loving relationships, we have to be willing to acknowledge when we make mistakes. You show me two people who've been in love for 50 years, and I'll show you two people who've learned how to apologize when they offend one another. And it doesn't make them weak, it makes them strong. And that's why I keep saying we're more than the worst things that we've ever done, because if we create a society where you are only defined, you are reduced to your worst act, and you can never escape that we create a society that is hopeless, 
And hopelessness is the enemy of justice. And justice will prevail where hopelessness persists. And so if we want justice, and if we want to evolve, if we want to get to a better place, we have to embrace this notion that we're all more than our worst act. Can you speak a little bit, just, we're, we're almost at time, but um, you said something about your own brokenness that really moved me because I think about my own every day. It's what gets me out of bed in the morning to yeah. go to court and deal with watching the chain gangs of yeah. mostly black men, yeah. you know, walking like penguins into my courtroom. And it's just, it's, I'm never going to get used to that. And the day that I do, I, I, I'll stop doing yeah. what I do. Yeah. Um, talk to me about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I have kind of created a new relationship to the work that I do. And it, and it began when I was working on a case where again, I got a call from somebody who had an execution date in 30 days, and the person had already been through the appeals process and knew it would be very hard to get a stay of execution. Uh, I did discover that he was intellectually disabled, and our courts have banned the execution of people with intellectual disability. So I went to the court, said, you can't execute this man, he's intellectually disabled. Every court said, too late, too late. And I once again found myself waiting for a ruling on the day of the scheduled execution and uh, about 45 minutes before the execution was supposed to happen, the court called and basically said our motion for a stay had been denied. And the hardest thing I have to do is to talk to someone on death row and say what I said to this person. I had to say, I'm so sorry, uh, but I can't stop this execution. And this young man, he did what I dread the most when I'm in that situation. He just began to cry. And before I, I, I could say anything, he was sobbing on the other end of the phone. And um, then he said, Mr. Stevenson, please don't hang up. There's something really important I have to say to you. And I said, of course. And then he tried to say something to me, but he couldn't get his words out. And uh, in addition to being intellectually disabled, he had a speech impediment. When he got really nervous and stressed, he would begin to stutter. And he could not get out a single word. And he kept trying to say something to me but he couldn't get his words out. And he kept trying, and he kept trying, and he kept trying. And the more he tried to speak and failed, the more he was just ripping my heart apart. I already felt crushed that we couldn't stop the execution. But the next thing I knew, I was holding the phone. Tears were running down my face. And it was so overwhelming that my mind actually wandered. And I remembered how, when I was a little boy, my mom had taken me to church one Sunday. And I was talking to my friends, and this little kid uh, I'd never seen before, was standing there, and I turned to this little boy, I said, hey man, what's your name? And this little boy also had a speech impediment, and he couldn't get his words out, and so he stuttered. And when he couldn't get his words out right, I remember doing something really ignorant, I laughed. And my mom saw me laughing at this little boy, and she gave me this look I'd never seen before. And she came over, and she grabbed me by the arm, she pulled me aside, she said, Brian, don't you ever laugh at somebody because they can't get their words out right. And I was like 10, I was still a little bit of a lawyer, and so I was like, well, mom, I couldn't hear, I couldn't see, the lights were low, I didn't know what was going on, I wasn't really like. And she said, no, Brian, you know better than that. And she said, now I want you to go back over there and tell that little boy you're sorry. And I said, okay, mom, and I took a step, and then she grabbed me by the arm, she said, wait, after you tell that little boy you're sorry, I want you to hug that little boy. And I sort of rolled my eyes, I said, okay, mom. And I took a step, and then she grabbed me by the arm again. She said, wait, after you tell that little boy you're sorry, after you hug that little boy, I want you to tell that little boy you love him. I said, Mom, I can't go over there and tell that little boy I love him. <laughs> she gave me that look, and so I remember going over to this little boy and walking up to him and saying, look, man, you know, 
well, you know, um, I'm sorry. And then I sort of lunged at him and gave him my little boy version of a man hug. And then I remember trying to say as insincerely as I possibly could, I said, look, man, you know, well, you know, um, well, um, I love you. <laughs> and what I'd forgotten until the night of that execution is how that little boy hugged me back. And then he whispered flawlessly in my ear. And he said, I love you too. And I was thinking about that, and then finally my client got his words out, and he said, um, Mrs. Stevenson, I, I just want to thank you for representing me. And then he said, I want to thank you for fighting for me. And the last thing this man said before they executed him, he said, Mrs. Stevenson, I want you to know that I love you for trying to save my life. They pulled him away, they strapped him to a gurney, and they executed him. And when I hung up the phone, I just said, I can't do this anymore. It was just too much, too much. I was thinking about how broken he was. And I started reflecting on the fact that all of my clients are broken. I represent broken people, broken by poverty, broken by neglect, broken by abuse, broken by addiction, broken by trauma. That I realized that I work in a broken system because the people who have the power are unwilling to do the things that need to be done to create healing and justice and redemption. And in that moment, I just said, I can't do this anymore. And I remember sitting down thinking about that. And uh, something said, you better think about why you do. If you're not going to do this work anymore, you need to think about why you do what you do. And I started thinking about it. And that's when I realized something I hadn't really realized before. And what I realized that night is that I don't do what I do because I've been trained as a lawyer. I don't do what I do because somebody has to do it. I don't do what I do because if I don't do it, no one will. What I realized that night that I'd never really realized before is that I do what I do because I'm broken too. And the truth is, there is a community of broken people, and we know something about what it means to be fully human. And what it persuades me is that you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be flawless. You don't have to have an unblemished record. You don't have to be this or that. You just have to have this belief that even in struggle, you can say something. And those are the people who have persuaded me so I can't stop doing what I'm doing because I am part of a community of people who understand the need for justice, the urgency of justice, the power of justice. And I don't run from the moments that shake me, that kind of cause me to reflect on that. And, um, you know, it's when we're broken that we sometimes understand what grace feels like, what redemption feels like, what healing feels like. And uh, I, I'm, I'm saying more and more that I'm, I'm feeling hopeful and determined and energetic because I now know uh, I'm living by grace. I'm living with injuries, uh, but those injuries are incapable of keeping me from something better. When I was a little boy, I used to play in a church, and the people who had the hardest, most painful testimonies would always end their testimonies and they'd start singing this song. They'd say, I wouldn't take nothing from my journey now. And that's what I feel like singing almost every day. I wouldn't take nothing from my journey now. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to the New York Encounter podcast. We hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please consider posting a review on whatever platform you listen on. Those reviews really help the podcast reach more listeners. If you share the podcast on social media, please tag the New York Encounter. On Twitter, we're at NY Encounter.